I'm speaking today with Reverend Dr. Liam Fraser, who we've done a couple of events with uh, before the, this year. Do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Yes, I am the Reverend Dr. Liam Fraser. <laughs> and I am, <laughs> and I am I'm the Church of Scotland campus minister here at the university. And uh, what does that entail? Well, that's a good question. Um, I basically, I'm like a minister without portfolio. I mean, literally, a minister without a church. Um, so basically, I engage in various different forms of discussion, like with people like Adam and the Human Society. Um, we have various different volunteering projects. Um, so we have a gardening project. We do some stuff with the homeless. Uh, we have community meals. Um, and we do worship. So we have a kind of worshiping community. And we have a flat who are people who meet and who have various events at the flat and worship together. Hmm. So that's the kind of main things I do. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We've, uh, we've had a couple of events with Liam uh, called Exploring the God Question, where we've discussed the, the, how science and religion meet, if they can meet, if they should meet. Uh, from, uh, I think the, the different themes were uh, biology, uh, evolution, um, uh, physics, stuff like that. And uh, a lot of our conversations have kind of gotten into spirituality and whether it's possible to be spiritual without being uh, religious. The, the notion of being spiritual but not religious, what, what does it mean to you and is it even a thing? Uh, in your view? Yeah, I mean, I'm in, I'm in the process at the moment of writing a book about uh, mission in contemporary Scotland. So looking at how the church functions and how it should, what it should be doing and so forth in, in contemporary Scotland. And one of the things I do is I go to the library and I go to the section on spirituality and the new age and so forth. And you've got basically you know huge range of books, many, many hundreds, dealing with the question of what spirituality is and what it means to be spiritual but not religious. And uh, to summarise all that vast literature, Basically, no one's in any agreement whatsoever <laughs> about what spirituality is and what its relationship to religion is. Because of where I'm coming from academically and the way I think, I, I tend to think of it in terms of history, um, so I kind of view it that way. So, I mean, basically, you've got a situation where spirituality originally meant um, one's relationship with God, with the Christian God. Um, we read in scripture that uh, no one knows the mind of God apart from the spirit of God and the one who the spirit comes to. Um, so for Christians, you know, throughout the centuries, spirituality has meant our, basically our relationship with God that's made possible through the Holy Spirit uniting us with Christ. And uh, in the course of history, that then moved on to something which is a little bit more recognisable as what we would term spirituality, um, where various different people within the Christian church, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, um, devised various spiritual exercises. Um, so for example, St Ignatius Loyola, who was part of Jesuit, who was part of the counter-reformation, people who didn't like Protestants like me. Um, he basically devised this thing called the spiritual exercises, where he takes you through kind of day in, day out, various different ways for people to kind of wean themselves off attachment to the world, off material things, away from the senses, and inward in prayer to God. Um, so basically there's certain things you can do to kind of wean yourself off attachment to the material and get closer to God, and that's what was called spirituality, a spiritual exercise. And um, really, that's the kind of two main ways in which the church understood it until the 20th century. And it was really only in the 1960s we had this kind of massive explosion in New Age spiritualities. Um, the Beatles, of course, famously go to India with Ravi Shankar and dress in really cool outfits and take LSD and meditate. And uh, they were the ones who got, they got photographed, you know, in, in this unusual garb and, you know, these unusual gurus and so forth, and they and other people really popularised the idea that there were spiritual paths that were not Christian ones. And so for a time there was this kind of hinterland where, you know, a lot of these people might have been raised in Christian households, 
Roman Catholic, Protestant, whatever. Um, and when they talked about spirituality, they were still talking about something that was kind of recognisably religious. It might be a new form of religion, it might be more Eastern orientated, uh, it might be to be like a world spirit, or getting in touch with the spirit of the earth and so forth. But it was still kind of recognisably religious in tone. And it's only been kind of comparatively recently you've had like an actual, what I would call a true non-religious spirituality coming into play. Um, really just in the last few decades. And really that's only been made possible because prior to about the 1960s, people were actually so poor and so kind of existentially insecure, they didn't have a huge amount of time to think about spiritual questions. Um, you know, when you know you don't know whether or not you're going to have enough health care, whether you don't know whether the crops are going to fail this year, you know, whether you, when you don't have enough money um, or time to enable you to think through the deep questions of life and to meditate and to look inward and so forth, um, really you're quite limited in the kind of spiritual explorations you can do apart from what the church or an institution <coughs> kind of helps you to do. Um, so to me it's a product of a time where people are kind of like uh, existentially more secure. Um, we've got a welfare state, which means no one's going to starve or they will go without medical care. And people have the time and the money to basically explore, to actually explore their identities, explore alternative ways of being, explore different forms of consciousness. Um, so to me this is a really recent term. And um, what I think it vaguely means for people, vaguely, although I said it's not any, any consensus about this, it vaguely means um, people who recognise that there is an aspect of existence which is not directly related to material or physical things or biological things. Um, so, you know, we're more, uh, we read in scripture, for example, you know, um, that man does not live by bread alone. Hmm. Uh, humanity does not live by bread alone. You know, we're more than just bellies waiting to be filled. We're more than just, uh, you know, bodies that need covered up and kept warm and all the rest of it. Um, there's a part of us that actually yearns for meaning and well-being and a sense of being connected to a greater whole. So I think spirituality can be that, and I think also it can be the, uh, the experience that people have, and we've talked about this before, the experience you may have during meditation, for example, where you're aware that there's a kind of um, material level, there's a biological level, an anatomical level to you, but also there's something else which is actually distinct from that. And uh, we can talk about you know, what that might be, but there's something that's different from you and your body, it's qualitatively different. Um, so I think that's explores some of the range of different things that people mean by spiritual. Hmm. So what does it mean to to you? What what is if you? Yeah. I I guess I can't do it uh, totally. But if you're trying to uh, subtract like the the purely Christian elements mm. of your own spiritual life, what 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 remains in terms of practices and, and routines? It's really funny. I've got I've got a friend who uh, I won't I won't out him, but he's mm. a Church of Scotland minister and uh, an academic. And he, uh, sometimes <laughs> he sometimes describes himself purposely against the sort of family guy cliches um, as, you know, not being remotely... I'm, I'm a religious but not spiritual. You know, <laughs> I, I go to church, I follow dictates of the church. Yeah. I, I'm just a purely cultural Christian. You know, yeah. I have no other spiritual depth whatsoever. <laughs> I, think for, I, think, I think that's an interesting question. I think it touches upon, um, you know, my own kind of journey to faith in a way. Because certainly, like, I, although I was raised kind of loosely in the church. Um, I wouldn't say that my family were really properly Christian. Um, we didn't pray, we never talked about the faith. We actually kind of sporadically went to church. It wasn't even like every week or anything. Um, and so for me, I, I probably had my first encounter looking back on it with God probably through nature. 
Um, so probably it would be like looking up at the stars, as it would be for many people, and being astounded by the vastness of the universe mm -hmm. and the majesty of the world. Um, and for me, that was something which was both mysterious, something that was beautiful, and something that was awesome. Um, and after that, I had similar experiences when I went to like churches abroad, um, which unlike our churches are actually usually open mm -hmm. and uh, you know are nice and warm to shelter in for a little while. And you know, my, my father and I would go into churches in, in Italy or France or whatever, and uh, you know, I'd just be captivated by the vastness of the space, the peace of the space, the darkness of the little candles fluttering. Um, and then encounter something similar to what I'd first experienced in nature. And that helped me then, for a variety of different reasons, then get closer to Christ as being the one who explains a little bit of what's going on there and, and who the Creator is behind all that majesty. So I think today, if you want to, I mean, if it's possible to bracket out, and I just want to say it's not really possible for me to bracket out, but if you wanted to bracket out, I'm going to be accommodating to your question, if you had to bracket out, then it'd be probably more tied up in nature, I think, still. Right, um, yeah. But for me, when I go into nature now, I go out to pray and I experience something of God's beauty and grandeur and wisdom and goodness through the created world. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure that's true for a lot of people. It certainly is for me. And uh, uh, I mean, there's no better reminder of, um, yeah, the, the, the beauty of creation, if it's crea created, uh, than, you know, going into the woods or looking up the stars. Um, and to me, it's also a reminder of what a cloudy mind it takes to not appreciate that. Like if, if you if you look up at the stars, or like I, I look pretty close to Arthur's seat, and like the the, the days I uh, look at that scenery and realize that I don't appreciate it, uh, that, that's a great reminder of how how bad I got my pro priorities um, set. Right. Um, but 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 also I think that that's kind of you know. I say that, but there's not really much more to add, you know, the, and, and you, you, you can add things like, you know, it's important to live in the present, appreciate the now, like, carpe diem, whatever, and mm -hmm. uh, I think to a lot of people that comes across as just, you know, um, one-dimensional, simple. Um, um, do, do, do you think there is a risk in that modern, modern people do not, uh, are, are kind of put off by the, the new age language that you associate with? with these kind of spiritual experiences? Yeah, I mean, there's been a variety of different um, uh, studies done about what people mean when they mean spiritual and whether you know, this spirituality thing is a new age thing or not. And certainly I think it was quite new age for a while, but I get the impression now there's lots of people who don't really associate it with new age and um, you know, are quite happy describing themselves as spiritual in some way. Um, and certainly that would often be through nature, be through meditation, and often it's actually with other people. Um, I mean, if you broaden out spirituality to be like well-being and, you know, connectedness, then actually it could involve just you know, ordinary social activity or the, the love of good friends. Mm. Um, so no, I, d I, don't think it's, I don't think it really puts anyone off. I don't, I, don't, I don't think there's many people who, you know, feel they wanted to be religious but were put off by the tag or the baggage from New Age or from religion. I think people are quite happy kind of exploring. Particularly right. now, I think, I think, you know, what, what's the thing that comes after millennials? The generation, generation X. Generation Y or Z. Generation Z. Y or Z, okay. Yeah. Some other generation. Both, both yeah. Both, oh, okay. No. Yeah, I mean, I think, I get the impression now that people, because they're actually, like, have very little church experience, often, usually, and because they've not really been around in the 60s with, like, you know, uh, Harry Krishna's or whatever, <laughs> um, you know, they're, they're kind of open to exploring all sorts of different stuff. Hmm. Um, which, I think, is good, actually. 
um, I think it would be sad if it didn't. Yeah, let, let, let's get into that, whether it is good. Um, I, uh, j just from having talked to you a, a bit before about stuff like this, I, I get the, and I don't want to mischaracterize your views, but uh, uh, like you think that's good if people have spiritual experiences and hopefully that will lead them to, like, I guess, proper spirituality in a sense, maybe lead them to ap appreciate churches mm -hmm. and eventually what is being preached in churches and the beauty of, of Christianity and, and of Christ. Um, I mean, but if we are to get technical, like a lot of other spiritual practices like mm -hmm. meditation are, from what I see, uh, centered around completely different value systems. Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 the aim of typically Eastern meditation is the obliteration of the self yeah. uh, and the obliteration of the ego, uh, only to realize that you're just this giant sphere of consciousness mm -hmm. uh, and sensations that doesn't really square with uh, Christian notions of yeah. well, of the self and the soul and uh, your personal relationship to, to God and creation. Yeah. So, um, uh, do, do you think that spirituality naturally leads to Christianity? Um, or yeah. is there fear in people flirting too much with the East and kind of uh, forgetting <laughs> about the West? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so stay, stay in Scotland and remember you're Scottish, don't go too far East. <laughs> yeah. um, I, I mean, I, I'm not one of these people who think that the river of spirituality only flows towards uh, Christianity. Mm -hmm. um, I think you can have any conceivable type of spirituality. Atheist spirituality, agnostic spirituality, Hindu, Muslim, Jewish, whatever. I mean, they've all got the different forms of spirituality, um, or possibly have spiritualities. Um, so for me, yeah, I think it's wrong for some Christian people, and I think I know quite a lot like this, who think that because people are now spiritual but not religious, oh, well, that means that you know, they're like almost like anonymous Christians or they're mm. on the way to Christianity. And I don't think that's the case. Um, I think there's all sorts of different kinds of spirituality, pagan spirituality, everything that just doesn't lead towards Christianity. Um, but what I, what I would say, I think, and also we come back to your thing about the self as well, and I think that's actually a really important distinction to make. I mean, I used to meditate. So there was a little while when I was in my kind of like interland period, sort of in between being not a Christian and then becoming a Christian, where I would meditate like a lot. And um, I did that for various different reasons. I did it because I, I, I liked it and enjoyed it. But second as well, because I was going through some really hard stuff in my life at that moment. And to be quite honest, looking back on it, it was really a way of detaching myself from pain mm. and suffering, really, um, by not getting too wrapped up in the way I was feeling, um, by getting some distance and objectivity upon the situations I was in. And I found it useful and beneficial, and I think it's useful and beneficial for everyone, and pr promote it to anyone, whether religious or not. Um, but for me, you're right, it, it rests upon a very, very different understanding of what human beings are, what the purpose of life is, and actually what the function of suffering is, actually, I think, as well. I mean, so I'm not, I'm not a Buddhist scholar, right? I'm just looking around the room, put my hands up, I'm not a Buddhist scholar. I don't know much about it. I've only read some books on it, and I've done some of the practice. But I think you are right that, yes, I think at the heart of it, large parts of existence are seen to be problematic for most kinds of Buddhism. Now, usually that's done to the desires. So there's problems with human desires. There's problems with human ignorance. And there's problems with the suffering of the world. And um, I think Christianity would accept all of those things are problematic. You know, so we're, all, we're all agreed at that point. Hmm. But like you say, I think for most people who meditate, the idea is to try and um, detach themselves, to kind of um, loosen up the... Uh, solidity and the, the, um, the seriousness and the force that everyday things brings 
Because actually, their way of dealing with all that bad stuff is to try and, yeah, re basically remove the self or to remove the desire, um, to basically kind of cut it out, if you like, or to make it disappear and to just completely forget about it. And Christianity is totally different. Um, in Christianity, we accept really seriously that creation is really good, like really good. It's very good, in fact, mm -hmm. in Genesis, very good. Um, and we think it's created by God, and including things like sexuality, desires, you know, all that stuff, it's all been created. But for us, the point, the purpose and the, the, and the goal of life is not to try and annul creation, to annul those parts, to make them go away or to pretend they don't exist. It's to transform them, mm. to redirect them, to make them channel and direct them in a different direction. So for example, like, let's say, you know, God's created human beings, from my perspective, with you know a desire for, for love and for sexual love, actually, right? But that, that desire can get perverted in all sorts of different ways. So rather than actually you know being settling down from our perspective with one person for life, you know you could just go around sleeping with everyone, and actually you could end up really hurting other people and hurting yourself and just become a complete mess. Um, so for us, it's not a matter of trying to like destroy our sexuality or you know to annul it. It's just directing it in a different way, and for us. Um, that comes about through love, through the love of God. So it's not about um, destroying the self or annulling the self or annulling desire. It's about being transformed by love, mm. which means first of all recognizing that we are loved unconditionally by God um, and loving him back. And then that love then transforming slowly our relationships with ourselves, with other people and with him. Um, so first it's not about destroying desires, but transforming it. Right. Um, and you're right, that's very, that's very different from meditation. That's why we, we pray mainly rather than meditate. Um, in prayer, we remind ourselves of who God is, of his love, of his goodness, of his love for us, his love for other people. And that's the conduit, that's the medium then for transforming ourselves and other people through that prayer and through that worship. Yeah, so yeah. I think they're very different. So yeah, I completely agree with you. I don't think that you know, spiritual experiences per se or meditation go towards Christianity and go all sorts of different directions. Mm -hmm. yeah. How would you characterize prayer to someone who has never tried it? If you imagine the, the kindest person you've ever met, um, I mean, most people will have a, some experience of love, um, whether it's romantic love or, or friendship love or parental love or whatever. But all of those loves that we experience in life are, are, are partial or limited or they reach an end. Um, there will be things that we do which actually many people would think warrant people to withdraw their love and for us to not love ourselves anymore. But remarkably, the Christian faith teaches that actually there's a, there's a person, there's, there's one in this universe who loves us unconditionally, who no matter what we do, will always love us and will always love other people. And um, prayer is the means by which you talk and communicate with that person and you listen to them and you hear them and you express your own feelings, emotions, desires, hopes, fears, everything to them. You present it to them and to that loving gaze and you receive back something a bit different your desires and hopes and fears and joys are transformed, your joys are crowned, your sorrows are healed, and um, because you know you've been forgiven, you know you have eternal life and you know you're loved, and you know that other people are loved. And that's crucial too, knowing other people are loved. Because if actually you don't recognise that people are loved by God, and they have unconditional worth, and they are loved in the same way as you, then it becomes very easy to hold grudges, and to um, find it very difficult to forgive and to move on. Um, so basically, it's like I hand God all my rubbish, and He gives me back gold. Um, that's what happens when prayer works, and it's glorious.
And it's conversational in nature? Or is he is he silent sometimes? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's lots of different reasons for that silence. Um, I mean, first of all, you know, we're talking about spirituality. So God is spirit. And that means that he doesn't actually communicate directly through a voice, through vocal cords, um, you know, constricting and expanding and releasing through an air being passed through it. Um, he doesn't hear us with an ear, with a little bone that vibrates in his ear. Um, he's not, he doesn't have a body. He's spirit. Um, and therefore, the way in which he communicates is indirectly or mediated. So he, he speaks through things, through text, through other people, through nature. He has to speak through things rather than directly. Um, so yes, it's possible. We, we believe it's possible in prayer to discern God's voice and God's leading. Um, that can be very difficult, especially when you're in a bad place. Um, you talk about that cloudedness that stops you from appreciating the beauty of the world. And we get the same thing in prayer. Hmm. If you're in a bad place because you've actually hurt someone, um, they've hurt you, you've done something that's really bad, you won't be able to hear God as well. You won't be able to see him as well. Hmm. There's literally like a barrier that comes down. Um, scales fall and you, you can't communicate as easily. And that's why we believe in confession, which isn't just about saying, oh, aren't we so awful and pathetic? It's not like that. It's like, actually, there are things which have actually marred my humanity and have harmed my relationship with other people. And I need to confess that, acknowledge it, be honest about it. And then that kind of curtain lifts a little bit and the light gets in a little bit more. Um, so, yeah, I think things get in the way. Um, and that stops us from communicating properly. But mainly, it's about speaking to God about your hopes and fears and desires and all the rest of it, and your prayers for other people and for the good of the world. And um, what's interesting, too, is it's not just about petition, because I was speaking about this, we had an event about mental health and faith a wee while back, and I was saying that one of the problems why prayer doesn't work for people is they expect that God is like, you know, a big powerful guy in the sky, but they're never entirely sure whether he actually likes them very much mm -hmm. or that he's actually going to help them. And he's a bit like kind of like a cosmic millionaire, you know, who might help you, but might not, you know. And that's really not a good place to be, and that makes you really dependent and weak and anxious and fearful and all the rest of it, obviously. But that's why I think actually a large part of successful prayer is actually celebration and thanksgiving, which actually does mean there's a lot of commonality here with, you know, more secular accounts of the good life. Like for us, celebration and thanksgiving is absolutely central. So if I'm saying, Lord, please, you know, um, please give me peace, I really desperately need peace, help me, Lord. You know, saying, Lord, I thank you that you're a God who gives peace. And I thank you that you will give me peace and you'll give me everything I need. Hmm. And then you tend to find that that works better. So yeah, we, we, we communicate with God, but not in a direct way like you and I are talking right now, and mainly through indirect ways. Right. One of the, um, I think the, the more powerful reminders of the, the, the spiritual or the transcendent aspect of, of, of existence, uh, to me at least, is... Uh, uh, death, mm. um, and I, I went with uh, Liam and a couple of uh, Christian students. Your disciples, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, they're, they're called. Uh, is that the formal <laughs> name? They call themselves that. Uh, no, I, I hope suffering. So. But yeah, well, we, we went to uh, Rosslyn Chapel and uh, <laughs> spent some time walk, walking around in the in the surrounding um, forest area. And uh, I was just looking out over this, you know, the lake running through and the, and the wind blowing through the trees and. Um, I thought that not only do I appreciate this right here, right now, but I, I will also be incredibly sad to see it go. Probably I won't like, see it go, but I, I was reminded of the fact that I will not always be here to see it. And uh, uh, th there's this great line in the, or verse in, in this Jason Isbell uh, song. Do you know Jason Isbell? 
No. You should listen to him. Yeah, great American. Is he Swedish? Oh, he's Swedish. No, no, yeah, no, no, Swedish. Yeah, okay. yeah, no. We don't make a lot of great music. But uh, <laughs> uh, it's like um, maybe time running out is a gift. I'll work hard till the end of my shift. Great rhyme. Like, to give you every second I can find, and I hope it isn't me who's left behind. So there, there's some sadness there. Mm. Like, I, I don't want to endure seeing my loved ones die. Um, but the knowledge of death and the reality of death and the, the ultimate nature of death to me is... Uh, inspires me to love and show love to someone who does not believe um, that death is final uh, and that the best is in fact to, still to come on the other side of death mm -hmm. um, do, do you in any sense lack that urgency um, do you not fear being uh, the last one left behind and, and if so do you think that's a, a spiritual aspect of life that you're maybe missing out on Yeah, I think when you're um, when you're at Rawson Glen, and I don't know if people have been there before, but um, and for, your, for the many millions of people listening at home on Spotify <laughs> or not, um, it's beautiful. So basically, you, you you're at Rawson Chapel, and then you walk down this little path into the valley, and there's a ruined castle on this promontory, um, in it, just on the edge of the valley, and there's a massive drawbridge that leads to a big stone bridge connecting the gulfing the the valley. And that is really, really steep down. And you look down into the forest and the river below. It's very, very steep. And um, yeah, it's exhilarating. And you are mindful when you're at that point, as you said, the fact, you know, the beauty and wonder of the world, but also like the, the, the finitude of life. Um, I, th I think there's a certain perception about Christianity which says, you know, we, we just don't think death's a problem. And it's certainly true. And I've, I mean, I, it's horrendous. But I've heard of funerals that the ministers or clergy have taken where like literally they've been beaming from ear to ear, you know, like kind of weird, kind of fixed grins. Mm -hmm. yeah. And they've been saying, no, isn't it such great, you know, that John's gone to be with the Lord, yeah, you know, and they're, they're jumping up and down. And I, I just, it's, just comp it's just bizarre, I mean, it's bizarre, obviously. Mm. It's inhuman because it ignores the grief that people legitimately feel. And third, it's completely unbiblical. We read in scripture that Jesus wept, a number of times says Jesus wept, when he was confronted with death or suffering, and he was sad. We read in some passages, the Greek is really evocative, that actually bubbles were like churning up. You know, it's really evocative language of people really experiencing the sadness and um, the brutality of death. When Lazarus you know, dies, he, he's sad. When his friends die, he's sad. And so there's, there's nothing in Christianity which stops a person from you know, experiencing mourning or sadness or anything like that. And, um, so no, I, I, don't, I don't think that our belief in life after death and in the new creation, because of course, you know, um, Martin Luther, the great reformer, was once asked, you know, what would he do if the world would um, uh, end tomorrow? And he is said to have said, although it's apocryphal, he's said to have said that he would go outside and plant an apple tree. Because for Martin Luther, the new creation doesn't annul this one, it perfects it. And that apple tree is still going to be growing. They'll be more beautiful than before. You'll be able to actually see its beauty more. Mm. Um, there won't be that cloud anymore. You'll see it for all its grandeur. You'll see how God sees it, and how much he loves it, and how beautiful it is. So I, I and I also had a girlfriend when I was at, uh, an undergraduate, oh. who was a big fan Congratulations. of her. Thank, thank you. I know. I'm, I, actually, I actually have some some relationships with the female sex, remarkably, mm. including my wife now. Thank you. Mm. And uh, no, no more girlfriends for me. So bragging. Uh, I, <laughs> so bragging. Yeah, yeah. I feel I feel bad enough as it is, man. So. 
Sorry. Keep it together. She was, she was a great fan of certain parts of William Blake's um, thought. Not all of it, but some of it. And particularly that line, you know, kiss the joy while it flies. Um, because basically, you know, you're going to die, it's going to die, everything's going to die and perish, and you know, enjoy it. And, um, you know, I, I think it's really important to appreciate things. But, yeah, for me, you know, at the heart of the Christian faith is that everything's changing and decaying all the time. Just today, actually, with a friend, I sang Abide With Me, and, and one of the lines is, change and decay in all around I see. O Lord, who changes not, abide with me. Um, so for us, like, yeah, we, while we don't think there's, like, the ultimate end of death, to, to some degree, the whole creation is just, like, perishing all the time. Um, and actually, to me, to me, it's actually when you have hope in eternity, you actually appreciate even more how much things just are constantly falling apart and how precarious everything is. Because actually, if you, if you, if you don't have that certainty of eternity, you're kind of minded to try and like block out some of the can be like insecure, the massive insecurity of everything. I mean, Brexit shows how insecure everything is. Um, you know, we're going to be eight days away from whatever, you know. Mm. Um, but it's like that with everything, our bodies, our societies, our institutions, our laws, our culture, our knowledge, everything just fades away and it's just falling apart. Um, so no, I don't think we're blind to that. I just think that we, yeah, we view it in a different way. But I don't think we're blind to suffering and death and to the finality of things. I think, yeah. Hmm. But we, we have a greater hope. I think maybe or we hope for something more. Hmm. I think that's the, the take on Brexit we needed, the, bi the biblical <laughs> one. <laughs> a biblical <laughs> Brexit strategy, that's what yeah, we need. Yeah. Well, we're, we're going to give the good people here a chance oh. to uh, ask some questions if, they, if they're in the mood to do so. But, but I thought for, first, let's end with uh, looking to the future a bit. So uh, 50 years on, you're retired, hopefully. Uh, but you're... <laughs> you say that. Yeah, I well, mean, like, well, the pension yeah. system's not real anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> again, with the politics, you're on, you're on fire. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But um, let's say you're going to church with your, your wife and uh, children and grandchildren. Uh, but you're very well aware that most people are not in church mm. on this Sunday morning. Instead, they're doing yoga or they're meditating or maybe none of those things. Having a podcast. Yeah. Stuff like that, yeah. Listen to Swedish music. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Listen to you, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll, we'll see about that if they're really <laughs> unlucky. Yeah. But um, yeah, Christianity is just not a big part of their life. Uh, what do you think the priest you're, you're listening to this Sunday morning will, will say? What, what does his sermon consist of? And, and what will Christianity preach in this post-Christian time. It, it's really funny when you say that because all I'm thinking is, well, we're already there. Like, I, mm. I, I mean, okay, it might go down a bit more, like by another couple of percentage points, but we're already at something where like only between zero and five percent of the population attend church regularly. Mm. And even if it goes down by another two or three percent, it's not going to make that much difference. Um, and that's one of the things I quite like in a way. I mean, I would hope that they'd be a bit more sensitive to the need for cultural engagement and proper mission and dialogue like we're doing now to some extent um, and all the rest of it. But to some extent, we just carry on because um, we believe that God is in his heaven, that he's created the world and guards it and he's working his purposes out. And to some extent, it doesn't really matter what's happening in the wider world. We'll continue loving as much as we can, serving, trying to live decent lives and, and preaching the message. Um, I don't think there's going to be much difference, actually. Can I ask you a question? Sure. I'm allowed to do that. Yeah. Is that yeah. the rules? Okay. We will cut it out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't know what I was asking a question. Because, you know, you, you and I had a discussion once in the pub about meditation. And um, 
you know, I think we were talking, I think we kind of came to the conclusion that, you know, there was a distinction between, like, consciousness and our bodies. Like, don't get me wrong, like, it arises from brains and electrical patterns and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, there's a kind of distinction between the two. Um, I mean, do you think that, do you think it's appropriate to call that spirituality then, insofar as it's something that's distinct from the body, distinct from matter? Or, or do you think it should be called something else, the practice of meditation? And what do you, what do you think of the spirituality? Well, uh, if you're already kind of reductionist about the practice of, of, of meditation, I, I'm fully open to like, the idea that consciousness is a brain product yeah. and that if you, if you develop a total causal knowledge of the brain, you will develop a total causal knowledge of, of consciousness. But what, will you, what you will never understand is the subjective yeah. quality of consciousness in another person. So that, that is always okay. unique to you, right? The subjective Consciousness is irreducibly subjective in that sense. And while you can understand how it's caused, you can never access the consciousness of, of another person. Um, so spirituality, to me, is centered on that, my subjective experience and how to purify it and clean it and make it as accessible to the beauty of the world as possible. And I can say that I've had a lot of uh, spiritual experiences um, but the times that, that might amount to spiritual experiences have, have been times where I have felt more or less unmoved mm. by, you know, distractions, um, regrets. Yeah. Um, and, I mean, and obviously that, that's not a state you want to be in constantly. Mm. You don't want to always be untouched by regrets. That's yeah. why they're there. They're there to adjust your, yeah. um, your, uh, your future behavior. But... Um, yeah, spirituality might just be, uh, to me, the, the simple reminder that maybe 10 minutes a day yeah. is good enough to just remind you that yeah. uh, the world is here and it's here right now and it is actually here to be appreciated and not only endured. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's powerful. Yeah. No, thank you. No, thank you. Um, does anyone have any questions for Liam? Yeah. Alex? So I guess my question is about, there's that classic trope that like the Bible has enslaved as many people as it's free. It's a very valuable tool, but can it be a very dangerous tool as well. And I just wanted to mention in terms of, you know, just translation, um, that idea that like the way that you uh, translate, say like Genesis 19, can have a complete different view of how, you, whether or not you love people or not, whether or not you would put down someone else's love. Um, um, and isn't it better to, to not be religious sometimes than to use religion for poor? Yeah, there's lots of good questions there. Um, I'll tell you about translation first of all, and then we'll, we'll kind of work to the kind of general issue about you know, whether it's better than adopting a purely secular humanist standpoint as opposed to kind of picking and choosing from religious texts. Um, there are certainly issues with regard to translation. And if one, if it, so if, you ask me, if the Protestant principle is worst, the idea that everyone can engage with the Bible and sort of work out their own meaning, at its worst, could mean that anyone could just come up with whatever meaning they wanted based on their you know, right or wrong interpretations of, of biblical texts. Um, so like, yeah, I mean, in theory, like, you could just interpret anything to mean anything. Same for anything. You could look, you know, read the phone book or a packet of Kellogg's Frosties or anything, you know, and interpret however you want. Um, but I think there's kind of two things that kind of safeguard against that, as long as, you know, other things are, other things being equal. First, first of all, like today, there are biblical scholars 
Now, for many people who don't know about this, biblical scholarship might be like an oxymoron, like, you know, scholarship and the Bible, like, how is that possible? Um, but basically, a lot of biblical scholars are actually agnostic or atheist, um, and they look at it in a purely objective way and, you know, have not any confessional attachment or anything. And they will basically, you know, write large tomes about how to properly interpret the Bible, including, you know, Genesis 19 or, the, um, you know, the fall of Jericho, you know, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, whatever it might be. And... Um, you know, we will touch a guide interpretation to make sure that people, you know, there might be a kind of a, a span of legitimate interpretation, but, you know, you can't just say anything about anything. So, um, yeah, I think there's a limit to, like, interpretation that way. But for me, the most important thing is that certainly from a Christian perspective, like, the, the main way in which we interpret Scripture is through what Jesus said and did. And don't get me wrong, at certain times in the history of the church, people have completely forgotten that. But this is like an absolute bedrock of the entire New Testament itself. Um, the New Testament writers, in particular Paul and other people, are actually using what Jesus said and did and interpreting the Old Testament in light of that. So, for example, while you know, in the Old Testament we read about the fall of Jericho and offering up of all living things and their band to God in some sort of weird sort of quasi-human sacrifice to Yahweh, you know, um, yeah, this is just impossible with the New Testament after Jesus. Like, you know, there's literally times when people literally raise their sword like St. Peter raises his sword to defend Jesus and attack people to defend him. And Jesus says, put away your sword. Um, he forgives the people who kill him. He says we should love our enemies. None of that's compatible with like large parts of the, of the Old Testament. And that's why we have the, what's called the Old Testament and the New Testament. Like there was one like a witness, one account for that period um, before Jesus. And then there was another one for the time after Jesus. And so basically they're like different worlds really. And if you're doing Christianity properly, um, you know, and we come back to that, but you know, because I mean, and if you're interested in how you interpret Christianity properly, I've written a book on it. So, um, and I look at the way in which atheists and non-religious people argue that, you know, they've got a better interpretation of the Bible than the Christian church does. But, you know, from my, my perspective, you know, and biblical scholarship would agree with this, the way in which you interpret the Bible mainly is the way in which the people understood themselves. So the New Testament writers understood what they were doing, they understood Jews in a particular way, um, they viewed it from within that world, and therefore to understand the right things, you need to kind of accept their presuppositions up to a point, which means you can't just go around killing people um, or enslaving people now. After Jesus, it's just not possible. Um, but yes, the history of the church is full of examples where people did not follow what Jesus said. I mean, the church routinely doesn't follow what Jesus says and did. They do persecute their enemies. They kill them. They torture them to death. Um, and there's no hiding that. But they're contradicting Jesus, and they've lost all authority whatsoever when they do such things. Um, does that answer some of your questions? Yeah. Okay. I'm looking for all the okay. So thank you. Uh, I've just got a couple of comments. What do I do with this? So, hello. You're talking. Hello. <laughs> um, I was just about. Um, I think the word spirituality comes from the Latin for breath. I think I'm not sure if I'm right on that. Um, and it's been inter uh, you said it's been interpreted obviously in loads of different ways. Um, so for me, for example, part of my spirituality, if you want to call it that, is more about the the scientific worldview and engaging with literature and history and art. Um, and I think if you're talking about togetherness or connection to some sort of higher thing, for want of a better word, I don't think you can get much better than. Um, evolutionary biology, for instance, you don't get better than that when it comes to being connected. Yeah. You're literally connected, physically connected uh, to every living thing on the planet or every living thing that's ever 
been on the planet. Um, but I do agree that there's kind of a, I don't know how to phrase it, like a, a misuse of words, if you like. Because um, spirituality means so much to so many different people. And it kind of reminds me of Einstein, who used the words God and religion in some very baffling ways uh, and has been claimed by both theists and atheists over the uh, decades, although he did say he didn't believe in a personal God. Uh, uh, so I think, I don't know how to use the word spirituality without, by, you have to disconnect it from certain things. Does it, does it mean anything if it's not religious or supernatural? I don't know if it does. Um, but for want of a better word, it's there. Um, and just one more quick comment. You talk about going out into nature and looking up at the stars, for example, and as wonderful an experience as that is, and I think that's part of a quote-unquote spiritual life, um, you'd have a very different experience if, say, you went out into a marsh swamp or you sat in a woods and watched an ichneumonidae wasp uh, slowly paralyze its prey and uh, put in its larvae so that it can eat the prey alive and, and as, as young can hatch. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> depends on your temperament. But yeah, you know, I think part of a mature spirituality is to realise, yeah, the universe and nature is wonderful and awesome, but it's also pretty terrifying. Uh, if you look up into the night sky, a lot of those stars are probably gone, mm -hmm. and they've probably taken a lot of planets with them, which, for all we know, had life on them. Uh, Gee, thanks, <laughs> but I think that's that's just part of what you've got to accept, and uh, I don't think you can just sort of. Uh, use that to justify a, a benign creation uh, without, uh, I don't think the problem of evil has ever been convincingly overcome. Uh, so I would just add that in. It's really funny you should talk about evolutionary biology and about, um, you know, uh, the problem of evil. I mean, I was literally, listening to Adam, I was literally lecturing today on David Hume, like literally, um, yeah, in the old medical college along there. And we were looking at natural theology and we were looking at William Paley and his work, Natural Theology. And he talks about all of these, um, you know, dark, the dark side of creation. And of course, there's different ways you can deal with that. And Christianity has dealt with it in all sorts of different ways. Um, so William Paley would tend to argue that, you know, these bad things have some sort of good effect, you know. So I mean, like, don't get me wrong, in and of themselves, they might appear nasty or bad or whatever. But overall, they give rise to more good than the harm they do or something like that. Um, or you would argue they're not actually bad at all, you know, in and of themselves. Um, but I agree with you, and actually what's really interesting that in Romans 8, for example, St. Paul talks about the whole of creation being subjected to futility. He thinks, I mean, like, you know, corruption and, you know, things falling away. I mean, basically, like, the, Old, the New Testament and the Old Testament is full of examples of people saying, actually, the whole world is falling apart, and it's really ugly and horrible. You know, it's actually like, on the one hand, you've got this, like, in the Psalms, you know, the whole, of the, the heavens are declaring your, your handiwork and your glory, Lord, you know, it's high, you know, ecstatic praise. And on the other hand, they're saying actually the creation is just rubbish. You know what I mean? Like, so like I, I, I mean, and Paul, but Paul, and it's really interesting why Paul says that and why he continues on to say. So he says, yeah, whole creation is like, it's been subjected to futility. The, the whole of creation is suffering like a woman giving birth. You know, we're talking about appendix earlier on, you know, but whether the pain, <laughs> I'm not going to out you, but like, you know, whether like, you know, the, the pain of having your appendix burst, you know, is a really extreme one. And giving birth, you know, is an extreme pain. And he thinks that that's actually what creation's like. So that's not a rosy picture of creation. That's all. That's a pretty painful and nasty view of creation. But it comes back to the new creation stuff again. So for Paul and for the Christian church, you know, this isn't the final deal. And one of the problems I think that apologists, Christian apologists have made, as well as people who are anti-Christian, I think we've all made the same error, which is to think that this is the final deal. 
like this is the world, this is the last world, and you know, it has to be the best of all possible worlds, otherwise God's evil or not powerful or whatever. When it's actually not, the whole Bible is about the fact that this is not the last world. This is not the creation of what God wants. Um, so for us, we look forward to a time when like all the stuff you talk about, all the nasty stuff, will finally be done away with, um, including pain and all the rest of it. Um, so for example, and there's different ways of understanding that. I mean, we could have a whole program of what like what that would mean for these wasps, for example, who laid parasitic wasps, things that burn people's eyes, you know, and make homes or whatever. But I want to come back as well as finding the spirituality thing about you know being connected to it. So I was talking about evolution today. I was talking about Charles Darwin, and um, basically I think that the the, the spirituality that comes, and I think it's a legitimate spirituality, of being realizing that we are interconnected with every other animal on, on Earth. You know, and we all have this common ancestor our ancestors. Um, it's extraordinary. The fact that you know, as Brian Cox is apt to say, you know, um, you know that we're stardust. You know, we're made of stardust. You know and all that kind of stuff. I think that's a really powerful spirituality, like really powerful, right? So don't worry, I think that's really cool, like really cool, I think it should be important. I think it's a big part of why people have experiences when they're out in nature, when they look up at the stars, they kind of know on some level they are connected, you know, and they're talking you know, biologically, chemically, whatever. But for me, even if you accept that level of interconnectedness, um, which is really important, I think it's really good, there's still like a massive unreconciled, there's massive unreconciled elements in the world. So like, even if you're connected with things kind of biologically or chemically or, you know, uh, elementally or whatever it might be, um, we're still separated from other people. We have, so we have, we have distorted relationships with other people, we have distorted relationships with ourselves, and also from a Christian perspective, we believe we've all got problems with God as well. Um, so like, yeah, I'm like, absolutely, that's a really great thing. And for me, that's a sign of God's, you know, presence within the universe, that there's an order and there's a interconnectedness between things and that points for me to to him and to what he's trying to do but for me that if, if that's you know if, that, if that's all there is to spirituality there's this whole other world of like nastiness that just remains unresolved and not interconnected and not reconciled um so yeah i mean and you know there's different ways you can do that but we came with one last quick question if anyone has a final quick question yes It's my exercise for the month. <laughs> Hi, thank you. Um, I, w I was just thinking, because this, this whole idea of, of feeling spiritual when you look up at the stars has been coming back up. And I was thinking that it, it almost seems as though religion explains away the majesty of that. I mean, to me, I think it's, it's perhaps more amazing that all of this could be an accident and that it's an accident that I'm here as well to experience that than to think that something has just been created. I mean, that's the argument of um, Richard Dawkins' Unweaving the Rainbow. And he, um, he basically looks at um, a number of religious writers who've argued that, you know, um, science, the more we understand about the world, the more, um, the less wonderful it becomes. That when you can grasp something and you comprehend it, then it loses something of its luster and majesty. And what he argues is something very similar to that, that actually, um, when we actually understand the world scientifically, um, first of all, we don't lose any of the luster. But actually, if we genuinely believe that we're only here for a brief time, but like Adam was saying, you know, that we're here by, we're by chance and um, you know, we're gonna die someday, to some extent, it's even more miraculous, the whole thing, I mean, more wonderful. Um, so yeah, and I, I think it's completely legitimate for non-religious people to feel wonder and astonishment in the world. 
but for me, the, the, the existence of God and the createdness of things um, doesn't really take away from their luster. And I think, first of all, it's because actually I don't think we're really disagreeing about the way in which things are fragile or um, you know, could easily just disappear or anything like that. We, we believe the same thing. Actually, things are finite and limited, and it's miraculous and things here. And, and you know, we, um, so I don't think there's any real difference there. But for me, what, what makes it more miraculous is not just that um, these things exist or that they're wonderful or beautiful, but because actually there's a love behind them. And, uh, you know, it's not just that the universe, our, my perception of the beauty of the world or the majesty of the world isn't just a subjective interpretation or an interpersonal interpretation of, of reality and aesthetic interpretation of things. Like, actually, it's genuinely, objectively beautiful um, in a way that transcends even what we can even comprehend, first of all. But, but second, to the fact that, you know, it's possible that there's a, there's a love behind it. And in Dante's um, Paradiso at the end, he talks about the love that moves the planets and the stars. Um, that there's a, there's a love behind it all. Not just a sort of indifference or a chance or anything, but like a love. So, I mean, to me, because of the fragile nature of reality, you don't lose that wonder and that majesty. But second to you, even something better, which is the fact it's moved by love. And that we are created in love. And we are called and created to know this great love and to know that we are loved and other people are loved. And to be reconciled and try and work together to try and solve all the horrible stuff we've been talking about. Um, but no, I, th I think all people, no matter what their beliefs, you know, should take delight in the way the world is and give thanks for it. Um, but I don't think that religion lessens that.